Today we are reading from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Sojourn, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's good to be together with you guys. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, just grateful to worship with you this morning. I'm spitting uh, through song uh, and to open up God's word now into Hebrews 13. So if you are new here, as Edward said earlier, grateful that you're here. I will tell you a little bit about how you can get connected into the life of our church uh, during our announcement time at the end of our service today. But it's good to gather with each and every one of you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we jump into his word this morning. Father, this morning we are grateful for your word, that you give us the gift of your word to help us understand more of who you are, understand more of who we are in light of who you are, and how now you call us to live as followers of Jesus. So I ask, Lord, this morning that you would help us as we open up your word to understand it, and to understand what you intend to say to us through your living and active word but not just for the sake of head knowledge, not for the sake of a transfer of information. But God, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would transform our lives. That you would help our church to be a people who heed all of your word, all of your counsel. Lead us by your Spirit. Produce fruit in our lives this morning, both individually and corporately as a church. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we pray this in the name of our redeemer, Christ our Lord. Amen. In 1992, one of the first and now longest running reality TV shows began. Anybody have a guess what that is? Nope, not Survivor. Real world, the real world on MTV, many credit the real world with launching the reality TV genre. Whether you think that was a good thing or a bad thing, I'll leave that up for discussion over lunch. The concept of the show is simple though. A diverse group of seven strangers, all young adults, are picked to live in a house together in a particular city for a particular period of time and their lives are filmed nonstop. The idea behind the show, like most reality TV shows, is, hey, let's see what happens when you put all these different kinds of people in a semi-controlled environment with no script or direction. Now, if you know anything about the real world, and I'm certainly not condoning that you should necessarily watch the show, but if you know anything about the real world, the famous theme line at the beginning of each episode that the cast members say is when people stop being polite and start getting real. Now, whether that can actually be realized in the setup of any reality TV show is also up for debate. But there's something to that idea. When people stop being polite and start getting real, it actually reminds me of what can happen in church community with life with one another. 
See, the early years of a church, the church gets started in a local church together, or just the early days of getting to know someone in a new friendship, a new relationship within the church, sometimes can be more about being polite. And, and when I say polite, I don't mean kind. Kindness is something we're always called to be towards one another in Christ. God gives us that call and command. It should be evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in our life that we are kind to one another. What I mean, though, about being polite is about being guarded. Not wanting to step on anyone's toes when we live life close to one another. But over time, as we grow in comfort, as we grow just in our experience, the reality of being in close relationship with each other over a period of time, what happens is the guards that we've kind of put up, the veneers that we have, the facades that we put in front of us, the masks that we wear start to come down and we get real with one another. Now, the real world line takes both being polite and being real and kind of juxtaposes those against one another. As if, oh, it's about to get real up in here, right? Like, it's going to, man, gloves are coming off. Like, people are going to be at each other's throats. But that's not the goal of the church when it comes to being real. It's not about increased tension with one another, but increased vulnerability, increased authenticity with each other, sharing our lives and, and our struggles with one another, but the good and the bad, the great and the difficult. So we have that call, but then on top of that, where we find ourselves, just like the church that the author was writing to in the book of Hebrews, is we find ourselves in a world and a culture that is increasingly hostile to the gospel. The message that Christ has given us, that God has given us through Christ, that Jesus is both King and Savior of our lives. And we are, as we talked about earlier in Hebrews, strangers in a strange land. We are sojourners. This place is not truly our home or our hope. But the gift is, what God has given us in this, is that we, you and I, do not sojourn alone. We've been given each other as a gift. But sometimes we need to be reminded of that. That we're actually a gift to one another. Because sometimes when we are being real, in all of our realness, and all of our rawness, it's difficult. Close relationships, even among followers of Jesus, can and will at times cause or lead to tension in relationship with one another, lead to conflict with one another. Then amidst tensions and frustrations, hurts, differences, and difficulty, it's not hard for us to lose sight of the gift of grace that we are to one another. And let me be clear, being a part of being connected to, being committed to a local church of a body of Christ followers is not an option for the follower of Jesus. It's our Savior's design, and it's for your joy, even when it's difficult. So as we get into our text today, what we see is an exhortation from the author to this small church who's striving to endure an exhortation to continue to be the family God has called them to be. 
then this exhortation is good for us as well as a local church here in Fairfax, here and now, as you and I continue to look ahead, as you and I continue to strive to be faithful to everything God has called us both to be and do together. Now my hope is that whether you're a member of this church, a covenant member of this church, if you're a regular attender, if you're someone who's checking out, is this the right community for you to be a part of? Or maybe you're here this morning and you're just trying to check out who Jesus is. My hope is is that God will use this time in his word to compel you to be connected in community, in real community for your own good and the good of those around you. Believing that we are better together than we are alone. So I'm looking forward to diving into this text with you this morning. So let's go ahead and jump into Hebrews 13. And may God bless the preaching of his word. As we get into Hebrews 13, and and really if we read through the whole rest of the chapter, it can seem like uh, the author is just kind of throwing a bunch of disconnected encouragements or disconnected exhortations together in the rest of this chapter. Almost as if it's a P.S., or kind of an appendix onto this lengthy book that he's written, this lengthy letter he's written to this church. Kind of like, oh yeah, by the way, I forgot to mention a few other things. But that's not what's going on here. The author is concluding this, te- this uh, letter with this particular text with purpose. This final chapter is full of application, but it isn't disconnected. It's deeply rooted, deeply connected in the overarching theme of the book of Hebrews. And that overarching theme of the whole book of Hebrews that we've talked about through over the last year as we've been walking through this is that Jesus is better. He's better than anything this world calls you to. He's better than anything this world promises to you. And so it's in light of that that the author concludes this letter. In light of that truth that he gives these exhortations and encouragements. And he does that especially because the world around you will continue to seek to destroy you. The world around you and culture will constantly seek to pull you away from Jesus. The enemy seeks to destroy God's people, the church that seeks to represent Jesus. So in Hebrews chapter 13, the author continues to pastor a people he cares deeply about. And in God's providence, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He pastors us too. So if Jesus is better, how now shall we live? Well, verse 1 in chapter 13 is really an overarching statement for the rest of chapter 13. He's done that several times in the book of Hebrews. And it's a short verse. Let brotherly love continue. If you're working on scripture memory, here's an easy one for you this week. You've got it already. Let brotherly love continue. Hebrews 13.1. Let brotherly love continue. Now, I I don't want us to miss the significance of what he's saying here, though, in this short few words. Because in these short few words, there's a whole lot of things, a whole lot of truth that kind of undergirds what he's calling us to here. The word in the original language for brotherly love is one word, and it's a word all of us have heard before. Philadelphia. That's the word in the Greek, for brotherly love. But what that word means isn't like, this is just a nice way to be nice to people. There's much more significance to it than that. The term Philadelphia usually referred to people who were actual brothers and sisters. 
biological brothers and sisters, a part of an actual family with one another. But he's not writing to one particular biological family. He's writing to the church. And so we have to see what he's saying here. He's reiterating something that's deeply true about us if we're in Christ. And then an implication that flows out of that truth for our lives. See, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus, believing that he died in your place on the cross for your sin, that he rose again from the grave to forever defeat Satan, sin, and death, then scripture is clear. By grace, through faith, God saves you from your sin. He saves you from the eternal, eternal punishment that you deserve for your rebellion against God. That is the gospel and the result of it. That's the good news. That Christ came to rescue you and you did nothing to deserve it. He came to rescue you, to reconcile you to God, and you did nothing to make that come about. By that, you're brought into relationship with him. Romans 5 tells us that he saves us and reconciles us to himself. And by that, we have peace with God. It's restored. This unity with God is restored through what Christ and Christ alone accomplished for us on the cross. But it doesn't stop there. An outflow, an overflow of God reconciling you to himself is that God also adopts you into his family because of what Christ accomplished. So we are not now a bunch of saved but disconnected individuals. God saves you as an individual, but he saves you into a community. He saves you into a family of brothers and sisters. God's people, the church, are a family that is founded on the good news of Jesus, that's founded on the gospel, and now, because of that gospel, functions by the power of it. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that changes us and allows us to be in relationship with one another. So the author is saying, because that is true, love one another like family because you are family. Love one another like family because you are family. See, the superseding principle of the Christian community that testifies to the world that the gospel of Jesus is real is the fact that we join together in relationship with one another. A bunch of people who are different from one another. It's because it is the bond that rises above every other way that we could bond together. It supersedes affinity. It supersedes ethnicity. It supersedes socioeconomic status. The gospel of Christ brings all people together in Christ as brothers and sisters. Not despite our differences, but in light of our differences. We are brought together as the family of God. And there are a lot of ways that you could identify yourself as a Christian. Your confession that Jesus is Lord. The fact that you gather with a church. All of those things may be ways that you could identify yourself as a follower of Christ. But what reigns above all of those things, Jesus tells us in John 13, is how you love each other. If you want to testify to the fact that you're a follower of Christ, it comes through how you love one another. It isn't just that we're family, but a family that's committed to one another and truly loves one another. 
But this kind of love, as Edward mentioned a few minutes ago, is only possible. It's only possible because it is a love first received before it's a love given. 1 John 4 tells us that our love for others is an outflow of our relationship with God who first loved us. And the crazy thing is God loved you when you were unlovable. He loved you when you rebelled against him. He loved you when you had no desire to know him, no desire to be reconciled to him, no desire to honor him or glorify him. He pursued you. He pursued you with relentless and radical, overcoming and triumphant love. And he did so by sending his son for you to lay lay down his life for you to rescue you. Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So if that's our model of brotherly love, what this means is is that brotherly love is possible because of the gospel. It's possible because of the gospel and now becomes an implication of it. It flows out of our lives. See, before any of us knew Christ, our focus was on ourselves. Even if you're an altruistic person, a generous person, a kind person from the world's perspective, at the core of your being, you are focused on you. You believe you're the master of your own life, the captain of your own ship, the king or queen on your own throne. But when the gospel of Jesus comes to bear on anyone's life, it changes everything. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17 tell us that when by faith we take hold of Jesus, when we take hold of him through his death and resurrection, we ourselves experience a death. The old is gone and the new has come. And this new life is a life lived now not for ourselves, but for Christ who saved us. Brotherly love then, because it's rooted in the love the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have for us, is then inherently others-focused, not self-focused. Because through Christ you're given a new heart that does not seek its own but the glory of God and the good of others. And this kind of love is radical from the world's perspective. This concept of brotherly love was foreign to the people that this church, this early church that the author was originally writing to, the the context they found themselves in. Culture was scratching their head. The people around them were scratching their head at the way they loved one another. And the same should be true for us today. That, that how we love one another can't be experienced anywhere else outside of Jesus' church. Because Scripture makes it clear that this kind of brotherly love is a love that bears with one another, forgives one another, serves one another, encourages one another, meets one another's needs, rebukes and corrects one another when necessary, teaches one another, is patient with one another, is gracious towards one another is kind and gentle with one another, is generous with one another, sacrifices for one another, and is united with one another. And all of that with a group of people that are different and diverse in any and every way. See, this isn't sentimental love. This is costly love. It's a love that requires laying down your rights and your preferences for the sake of your brother or your sister. 
considering their needs above your own, just as Christ did for you. Brotherly love is what binds a community together. So the question for us is, how is how we love, is how we care for one another distinct from the culture we live in? Is there anything distinct about who we are as a local church and how we love one another from the way the rest of the world operates? You see, the author isn't calling them to brotherly love because this community characteristic was absent in this church. He's calling them to continue in it, to keep doing it. But the reason I think he's encouraging them to keep doing it is because in the midst of persecution, in the midst of pressure from a hostile world, brotherly love can be weakened. And so this is a call to them and to us to be on guard, to maintain the unity Jesus purchased for us, to fight for it and love each other well. The reality is sometimes when things get hard, when life gets real and it gets all up in your face, the pressures can be taxing on our relationships with one another. It may come about because of suffering, which disconnects us from one another. It may come about through hurt, where we unintentionally hurt one another. It may come about through sin, where we sin against one another. It can, may come about just from the stress of life. It may come about from the busyness that we, f- we fill our lives to the brim with other things, so we don't have time for each other. It may come just through familiarity, that we've lost the awe that we should have, that we get to do life with each other. That God has gifted us to one another. Then it can lead to lack of intentionality in our relationships. It can lead to jadedness, complacency, or apathy. Or sometimes just an altogether abandoning relationship when things get hard. See, this church needed to be reminded of their call from Christ to love one another. And so do we. Because our temptation in a self-focused world is to revert to a focus on ourselves. To place our preferences above, our, uh, above others. To think only about how does something affect me instead of how is God calling me to be involved with this group of people. So sojourn, how are we doing with verse 1? With letting brotherly love continue? I'm encouraged. I see people in our community coming together to pray for others, pray for those who are struggling, pray for those who are suffering, bringing meals to one another in need, paying a bill for someone who can't right now at this moment pay for something in their life, helping someone move to a new home, babysitting, sending a text or a phone call or an email or getting together just to encourage and check in on each other. I'm encouraged by what God's doing, but I don't want us to be satisfied either. To kind of look at that and say, okay, I I think we're okay. I think we're good. Box checked. Let's just maintain the status quo. No, I want us to continue to press in and continue to grow more and more in loving one another. To become more and more of a community that is only explainable because of the gospel. That when someone looks at how we interact with each other, that we have to say, The only explanation I can give you is Jesus. Because outside of Christ, I probably wouldn't be friends with him or her or that family 
I probably wouldn't do these kinds of things. It's only because of Jesus. Sojourn, are we loving one another in such a way that we are creating a culture where anyone, anyone, regardless of their background, regardless of what they look like, regardless of where they're from, can be fully known and fully loved. To be fully known is to live life before one another without those facades, without fakery, being real about both the struggles and the joys of our life. But that can be scary. It can be scary if you fear that in being fully known that you will not be also fully loved. That someone might stiff arm you or push you away or ridicule you or not understand. To be fully loved is for people to know though all of those things about you and say to you there is grace. Grace upon grace, as God says to us in James 4, there is more grace that we would look at one another and say, I love you. And more important than my love for you is that God loves you and he says he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you. Neither of us are going anywhere. So let's continue to journey together. Maybe you're here and you realize that you've never experienced this kind of relationship before. So if that's you, let me invite you to two things today. First, let me invite you to be a part of this community. As we strive to live this out, and we will not do that perfectly. We will be imperfect and messy probably most of the time. But let me invite you in, believing that it is worth it for you to be a part of a group of people who are striving to follow Jesus together. But let me also invite you to Jesus. Because apart from him, none of us can love in this kind of way. We may be able to fake it for a little while. But we don't live in a fake it till you make it kind of church. If we're going to be real with one another, we need to be desperate for Jesus. And so if you don't yet know Jesus, we want to invite you to Jesus. That you might experience the love of God in and through Christ above all. Believing he alone can rescue you from yourself. He alone can rescue you from your sin through his death and resurrection. So this morning, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus' church. Be a part of what God is doing. See, we need to understand that these kind of relationships are only possible because of the gospel. We are family because of Jesus. We can love one another because of Jesus. It's the fruit of faith in a faithful Savior King. My encouragement to all of us this morning is not to wait for someone else to brotherly love you, but that you would be the initiator and brotherly love them. Step out in faith. Now, verse one is the main emphasis of this text. As we get into the rest of Hebrews 13, much of the rest of this chapter flows out of these few, four short words here, this phrase, let brotherly love continue, it flows out of that. And so what we have to see is what follows is how are ways that we can love one another and love together. And so he gives some specific application points. And we're going to hit just a few of them this morning briefly and talk about the rest of them over the next few weeks. So in light of this call to let brotherly love continue, what are we to do? Well, verse 2 gives us something practical. Do not neglect to show hospitality, he says. But he says don't, show, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, 
Now, what stranger is he talking about? Well, he definitely could be referring to anyone. As we as followers of Jesus should strive to show hospitality to everyone. But he is referring most specifically to other followers of Jesus. Other Christians who you don't yet know. Christians in the early church lived life expecting, because they understood that they were part of a family, to be welcomed in by other followers of Jesus. Especially when they were maybe traveling to a new city or a new town because hotels and inns that people might stay in weren't usually safe or moral places. So Christians would look to other brothers and sisters, the family of God, to lovingly take them in as they had need. This idea of hospitality then is again rooted in the love the Father has for us. God didn't just save you and bring you into the edge of his kingdom. He brought you to his table. Then he called you son and he called you daughter. So then we might and can do the same both personally and corporately. See, hospitality is about receiving someone as a guest into your home, into your life, into your community. Brothers and sisters from other cultures get this. We can look around the world and see men and women from other cultures who are following Christ that often and regularly welcome people into their homes. But in Western culture, we've lost this. And that's affected us as the church. Through cultural conditioning and pressures, along with personal preferences and a desire, maybe an idolatry for comfort and the appearance of security, all of those things can overtake our call to love. But here's the deal. If we're going to show hospitality to strangers, perhaps a brother or sister who's a refugee fleeing another country because of persecution for their faith, or a follower of Jesus who's just new to the area that doesn't yet have a community to be a part of, or maybe at its most basic level, a brother or sister that's just new to this church. Let's just start there. If we're going to show hospitality to strangers, we have to start by asking, are we even doing this with one another? Are, are, we, living with one an, and are we living with one another in real community? Are we inviting one another into our lives, into our homes? taking each other out for meals, serving one another, loving one another. And sometimes we do this well, and sometimes we don't. And so my question for you this morning is, if you're not doing this, take time to consider why. Why do you struggle to show hospitality even to those you already do know, let alone those that you don't? Is it because of comfort or ease Or that you like predictability in your life to such a degree that you're unwilling to welcome somebody in. Maybe you have an unrealistic view of hospitality. That instead of being hospitable, you actually think you're supposed to be an entertainer. And so you don't want to welcome somebody into your home when there's toys all over the floor. Or dishes in the sink. Or a bed that's not made. Or laundry that's piled up. I don't see any of those things in here. Man, it's just about opening your home, opening your life, because that's where real life happens. Are we inviting people in? For those of you that are doing this, my exhortation is the same as the author's. Let brotherly love continue. Continue to do those things and help those around you to learn what showing hospitality might actually look like. And for all of us, don't neglect to show hospitality to one another and to the new person God has put in your life. Even today, look around. Maybe invite somebody out to lunch this afternoon. 
Ask them what community group they're a part of. Start a relationship to encourage one another in Christ. Now, an interesting and sometimes confusing part of verse 2 is that the author says that when we do this, when we show hospitality to a stranger, we might actually be entertaining angels and not even know it. What in the world is that about? Well, the author is definitely referring to a story in Genesis chapter 18 when Abraham did exactly that. That Abraham had a group of men come to him and he thought we're just traveling through and he showed hospitality to them. But these just weren't ordinary men. They were actually angels sent from God. And Abraham did what God called him to. He welcomed them in. But at face value, what the author is saying to us is, yes, that could happen to you too. You could show hospitality to someone you don't yet know, and they could be an angel from the Lord. But at its most basic level, what we need to understand, what he's saying even more than this, is you never know what messenger of grace God is sending your way. Because that's what an angel is. A messenger of grace. So maybe they're not a celestial being, but a brother or sister in Christ who God has put in your life to encourage you and help you in a way that you wouldn't be if they weren't. They wouldn't be able to if you're unwilling to open up your home and life to someone else. Sojourn, because of brotherly love, may we continue to be a welcoming community and a loving community and grow in that to all who God sends our way. We see this next next aspect of brotherly love in verse 3. He says there to remember those who are in prison and those who are being mistreated. For this young church, there were likely people they knew who were in prison or being mistreated because of their faith. Now, my guess would be that for most of us or all of us, that we don't personally know people in this kind of situation, at least not yet, in our own country. And for us and for them, it's a call to, out of love, identify with those who are suffering for the cause of Christ. What we do know, though, is that there are many brothers and sisters in the global family of God who are being persecuted even now, that are in prison even now. And so this idea of remembering isn't like, I should just remember that. That's helpful to note. No, it implies active response. Don't forget about them. Pray for them, serve them, love them, care for them as Christ has loved and cared for you. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that we are all a part of the body of Christ. And if one member in the body suffers, all of us suffer together. Now, I do believe that persecution will increase in our country. Maybe even more significantly in our own lifetime. So will we stick with one another? Will we let brotherly love continue no matter the cost? The third aspect of brotherly love that we see in this text is in verse 4. In verse 4, the author calls us to honor marriage and pursue sexual holiness. Let me just read the verse for us again. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, at first look, this may appear like it's disconnected from verse 1, but I think it's definitely related and connected. But let's first seek to understand what exactly he's talking about. See, we need to understand that human sexuality is a gift from God, not something to be disparaged like it often has been in the history of the church. It, like every other gift, is a gift when it's lived out in the way which God designed and directed. 
So when the author calls the church to honor marriage and let the marriage bed be undefiled, he's calling the church to uphold, calling the church to celebrate God's good design, whether we're married or aren't. See, before sin entered into the world, God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman, and that all sexual activity was to be lived out in the context of marriage. What this means is both marriage and sex are inherently good. But sin has jacked all that up. Like it always does, sin distorts God's good design. It distorts righteous desires within us to no longer glorify and honor him, but to glorify and honor ourselves. Once again, it places self above God and above others. Sexual immorality, then, is any sexual conduct or activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. And the culture that the author was writing to is very similar to our culture today when it came to our understanding of sexuality. We find ourselves in an overly sexualized culture, a culture that elevates sexual pleasure separate from marriage, even as a worthy aspiration. Hookup culture is celebrated and encouraged, unfortunately, maybe even all the way into elementary school up to adulthood. But that's not God's design for us. See, this self-focused sexuality is clear in culture as we look around us, but it's even true in our own lives because sex is usually seen as something to satisfy us personally. And marriage, if we start to fall into this, can be often seen as antiquated or cumbersome. Amy and I have been married almost 15 years, coming up in June. So we got married when I had just turned 22 and Amy was about to turn 22. And so we both remember that oftentimes people that we were in the workplace with uh, or just that we knew that weren't followers of Christ would, would say to us, like, you're so young. Like, are you sure you want to get married right now? You need to live a little. And the implication, what they were implying was that marriage is almost like settling by settling down. The alternative, living it up, checking out the sexual scene was more noble or right. But that's not what God says, and that's not what the author is calling the church to either. He says, rather strongly, God will judge the sexually immoral. God will judge the adulteress. If we had more time, Scripture is clear. It does not pull any punches when it's talking about the seriousness of sexual sin. Judgment for sexual immorality for the believer, we've seen this throughout Hebrews, can't mean the loss of salvation. But we do need to recognize through all the warnings of Hebrews, what he might be saying here is that ongoing sexual immorality could be an indicator that you're not actually saved. Because God's given you a new heart when you know Christ to see sin for what it is and to walk away from it. As we said a few weeks ago, obedience to Christ matters, and we cannot claim Christ and not be becoming more like Christ. So how does all of this connect with this call to brotherly love that we see in verse 1? Well, sexual immorality and marital infidelity are inconsistent with brotherly love. Because sexual immorality, whether you're married or single, is the height of selfishness, which is the complete opposite of of brotherly love. See, when you pursue sexual sin, you place yourself above God 
and above another. And in the context of the Christian community and call of Christ, that is the antithesis of how he calls us to live and to love. So here's why verse 4 matters in light of a call to brotherly love. Upholding biblical marriage, upholding biblical sexuality in our day, in our culture, does three things. First and foremost, it honors and glorifies God. The shorter catechism says, what is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. He's called us, he's gifted us with these things to live in light of them. We glorify him when we do this. The second thing that it does is it's the epitome of brotherly love. It's a picture of it. Ephesians 5 tells husbands to love their wife like Christ loves the church, laying down his life for her. Laying down your life for someone. Whether that's your preferences or your rights or your actual physical life is the ultimate picture of Christ-like love. Here's something that all of us, though, need to remember and understand as it relates to how we relate to one another as men and women. As men and women, both single and married, are brothers and sisters in Christ first and foremost before we are anything else to one another. So we should relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, whether we're married or not. That's the most important established relationship that God has given to us. And the marriage relationship is the most basic Christian community. And so in it, brotherly love must continue. Husbands, are you loving your wife like Christ called you to? Are you laying down your rights and your preferences for her? The third reason this matters is that honoring biblical marriage and sexuality is a beacon of light in a dark world. It shows the world around us that the good ways of God are not only good for ourselves as individuals, but good for our families, good for society, and good for culture as well. And just like the other calls of brotherly love in this text, it shows the world what Christ-like love actually looks like. As one pastor writes, one of our greatest needs in a broken society is the example of strong and godly marriages to encourage those who have never seen true love and to provide them with a model. And one of the greatest witnesses in our age will be Christian couples who faithfully meet the struggles of marriage with the grace and power of God. It's also a witness when single men and women who are seeking and striving to follow Christ uphold and honor marriage by remaining sexually pure. God is honored when all Christians honor marriage. Now this doesn't mean being married is better than not being married. But that we value all people. We value one another. We encourage one another in brotherly love, whatever our relational status is. What what does he say? He says, let marriage be held in honor among all. This is for everyone, for the whole church. And so we As another pastor says, we all have a special interest in upholding the institution of marriage and the actual marriages among us. And so together we can respect marriage as a community. We can encourage those who are married in our community to remain faithful to God and to one another. Listen, brother, sister, who is not yet married, you should speak into the life of your married brothers and sisters and encourage them 
to be the husband that they're called to be, to be the wife that they're called to be. And we also should encourage those who are not yet married to remain faithful to God. And all of us should strive together to live sexually pure and holy lives. It's a way that we can love one another. We can show and exemplify brotherly love by encouraging one another, being on guard, helping one another to be on guard, and pointing one another to Jesus, reminding each other that he is indeed better. So are you struggling in your marriage right now? Are you struggling? Does anyone know about it though? Have you let anyone in to help you? And are you willing to listen? Are you struggling with sexual purity right now? Whether single or married? Statistically speaking, a large majority of both men and women in this room, even as followers of Jesus, are struggling with sexual sin in some way, shape, or form this morning. Does anyone know? Have you, have you let anyone in to help you? The brokenness of marriage and personal sexuality can blow up your life, and it can blow up the church. And we cannot do any of these things apart from the love and care and concern of the community. We can't have healthy marriages apart from community. We can't have and walk in sexual integrity and holiness apart from community. We need each other. It goes back to Hebrews 12, 15. See to it. Be committed to one another and one another's holiness. Why? Because we love one another. Sojourn, these few verses are so important for us to take to heart, to strive by the power and grace of God to live out. Because you and I live in enemy-occupied territory. And as I said at the beginning, our enemy only wants to destroy you, to seek to steal, kill, and destroy you as an individual and our church as a whole. And so this is an awesome call to practical Christian living in the context of community. A community that reiterates and reminds and rehearses the belief that Jesus is better. And because he is better, we live and love differently as individuals and as a community. And because we've experienced that love, it changes our lives forever. So my encouragement to you this morning is take up that same love and continue to give it, continue to show it, continue to share it with one another with your eyes fixed on Jesus and your life opened to one another. We take communion every week as a church and this is a means of grace to refresh us in the gospel Imaging to us Christ, what Christ has done for us. We eat the bread as a picture of Christ's body broken for us. We drink the cup as a picture of Christ's blood shed for us. But as we need to be reminded often, we do this together. We come to the table as the church of God, purchased by the blood of Jesus, brought together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so once again this morning, Come forward and celebrate that you come forward with a room full of people who have experienced the same grace that you have. And take a moment today, not even later today, like maybe after you eat the bread and drink the cup, look to the person next to you in the eyes and say, I love you. Like really do that. Maybe it's weird or awkward. You don't know the person, but hey, you can, you can show hospitality this morning by just looking at them and saying, I love you. Give somebody a hug. Maybe not if you don't know them. 
that creeps some people out. But give somebody a hug. Give them a handshake. Look each other in the eyes this morning as the church and just say, brother, I love you. I'm here for you. I'm not going anywhere. And then let's sing together. Sing together and celebrate God's grace, his radical, lavish love and grace that has been poured out on us and brought us together. For those of you that are not followers of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward to take communion because this is a testimony to the fact that we have placed our faith in Jesus, that he is our only hope, that we are completely lost apart from him. And so if you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, I just want to invite you, as I did earlier, just to hang out in your seat, but I want to invite you to take Christ today. Pray, ask God to save you today. Place your trust in Jesus today. And then let somebody around you know that so we can celebrate that with you, journey with you, and you can come and take communion with us as a new family member next week. And those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or in the back. And what Christ has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we just simply want to give you thanks this morning. Thank you for the gift of community. Thank you for the gift of family, that you don't just save us to be a bunch of disconnected individuals. You save us into a group of people. We once were not a people, but now we are. We once had not received mercy, but now we have. And that changes our lives. Lord, help us to live lives where brotherly love continues. That we would show hospitality to one another. We'd show hospitality to the new person in our life. No matter who they are, where they come from, or what they look like. God, would you help Sojourn Church to be a community that is only explainable because of the gospel. And Lord, may we celebrate now by taking communion, that's by what Christ has done for us that even brings us together in the first place. We love you. We thank you for your love for us. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.